1: Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course on the Bloomberg.
0: Tom Keene, as I mentioned, in Boston last night at Fenway Park, a frozen Fenway Park, I should add, where Bentley defeated Army for the second year in a row. You were there, Tom. Uh, an eventful second period. He actually not uh, he was... put out a graph of uh, the uh, plot of the puck as it made its way around the rink. John Tucker, it, what was great good, about eh? it,
1: <laughs> that was very good, John. What was great about it, as we saw with Detroit and Toronto uh, in that fabulous NHL game in Toronto the other day, is there's no substitute, David Girl for outdoor hockey. It's just different. The ice is harder. Everything is faster. Everything moves faster. And if it's some guy making $7 million for the Toronto Maple Leafs or it's some kid worried about the organic chemistry exam at Bentley University (laughs) this coming Thursday, they're both the same. they got smiles on their faces even within the heat of the game. I will say this. There's something, and, uh, you know, John Tucker and David Gurr know this, but for our international audience, it's the Sistine Chapel of baseball is the way I put it. Uh, remarkably unchanged from my childhood. And then to see a hockey game stretch from third base to first base, David, was just extraordinary.
0: You weren't calling the game, but you were providing color, as you often do, Tom. Uh, how was it? How, how was it being uh, in your, the, the favorite chair let me put, you were so looking yeah, forward to sitting in?
1: I'm sitting in Joe Castiglione's chair, the giant of Red Sox radio. And I, I made a joke. I did not go back and forth with Ken Danico of the New Jersey Devils. I am an Awe of what Mr. Micheletti and Mr. Danico do mm-hmm. in New York is color commentators. It is John Tucker. It is so darn hard to come off a play and say something intelligent <laughs> about what just happened. It, it it looks easy. We all sit you at home. Did
2: not disappoint
1: though. Every, every oh come on. Paul McNamara is joining me. Grizzled pro does Harvard hockey up here in Boston. At one point, Johnny spit out his coffee. I was so inept. <laughs> It froze on the way down to the desk, I might point out. But it was it was a struggle, uh, to say the least.
0: How was the crowd, Tom?
1: You know, I'm glad you bring that up. 34,000 seats in the traditional Red Sox. There's a little more attendance now. Seats on the Green Monster mm-hmm. uh, out of the left field. And they're building new seats, actually, for this year to pay for all their high-priced talent. I would suggest 3,000 people. Uh, towards one end of the rink, the third base side of Fenway Park. But it was a joyous crowd. Uh, Many people, of course, from Bentley, which is based out of greater Boston. Uh, But it was quite something to see uh, Army attend as well. And it was just a joyous crowd with Bentley. Uh, surprising. Army's a better hockey team, and Bentley just put the spirit into it and really just decisively beat them over one, two, and three periods.
0: There you go. Again, three to one, the final score there. Just want to break the India GDP figures crossing the Bloomberg uh, right now. The expectation, the estimate there was for 6.8% growth. Uh, in fact, GDP growth at 7.1% for the year ending uh, in March. So some uh, news there about the Indian economy, Tom.
1: Yeah, it, it has been an odd first week. We've been honored with all the guests that we've had on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television for surveillance starting off the year. But the backdrop, and and David, my theme has been the butterflies and the butterfly effect. That is a pretty ancient concept, nothing new. But the real concept uh, of it is the idea uh, from MIT and Edward Lorenz of 50 years ago of uh, if if Mr. Trump says something, mm. the wings flap in Koala Lumpur. And we continue to see this on this Friday morning.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I know you've been looking at emerging markets, looking at the Turkish lira as well throughout the morning. Uh, that's still your focus. That's been your focus through the week, your emerging market currencies.
1: It has been. The EM in Turkey with all their politics as well. Uh, it is a pleasure to speak to the mayor, Mayor Walsh. For years, it has been Mayor Menino and Marty Walsh, uh, whatever anyone would say as supporters as critics, what large shoes he had to fill, and he has done it with a wonderful grace. Mayor Walsh, good morning. What was it like the first day filling the shoes of Tom Menino?
3: Well, you know, the first walking in, I wasn't sure what to expect. I think the, the one thing that that was that was not expected was people in Boston, uh, not that they were looking for a change, but they were kind of curious on what life would be uh, without a Mayor Menino. And I think that that helped, in a way, um, the fact that he did so many great things in his 20 years as, as mayor of the city. And people, you know, a lot of young people only grew up with you know, They didn't know anyone else. They didn't know yeah. the Kevin White. They didn't know the Ray Flynn. Uh, so it was kind of, it was, it was a nice transition because people gave the leeway to see, well, what's going to be different? And I think people like what they've seen in three years here.
1: Oh, I would agree with that. I mentioned last night to Gloria Larson of Bentley University this idea of courage, the courage of Tip O'Neill, Joe Moakley uh, selected. There's like four – Marty, help They're me. People. There's like four Republicans in Boston <laughs> or is it, are they up to it. six?
3: This four, this football four, three and a half, maybe. <laughs> three um,
1: and a half. <laughs> That's when Mitt Romney's in town. Uh, Mayor, when, when I look at the courage of Boston to do the big dig, big projects, big vision, the payoff is General Electric choosing uh, to come to Boston. Give us an update on the entrepreneurial momentum, the mm. fancy guys, the elites, the service sector dynamism of this city. Give us an update after that big yeah. win with General Electric.
3: You know, even before GE came to Boston, you know, innovation and, and, you know, obviously we have medical here because of the hospitals hospitals that we have. But GE, really, to sum it up, Jeff Alt when he came here, talked about the political atmosphere in Boston. He liked how it was going. Uh, he loved the talent that we have in our city uh, with the college students, about 250,000 college students every school year come here, some from Boston, some from all over the country, all over the world, quite honestly. He talked about that talent, he talked about the culture of our city. He spoke about the, the, the beauty of what's happening in Boston that you can get from one side of the city to the other. He actually walking around and and, and we have all the amenities that big cities yeah. in America have. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the the, the innovation and technology is just incredible. You know, we have Mass Challenge here, we have we work here, uh, we have so much biotech and tech right. and and it's really you know what's happening. A lot of it is going down to the, the South Boston waterfront. But a lot of it also settling in the downtown area. So it's kind of, it's the economy of the future that Boston's really right. building upon. And GE is G E having GE in that city is just an incredible victory for the city. But it's also good for G E. Um, you know, it's not just about it's not just a one way relationship. Uh, GE gets a lot of benefits, particularly with the with the with the, right. with the education in uh, but the I,
1: city. I, I want to jump in here, Mayor Walsh. David Gurr, I want you to jump in with the mayor, but I want to point out, folks, this is important. With the medical excellence of this city, you get that if you're a kid with cancer and you have to utilize the facilities of the Boston medical community, and that's what Marty Walsh did a million years ago. David?
0: You called it a victory there, Mayor Walsh, and I, I know that it was competitive. It's hard to get these companies to uh, to come to your city, to go to any any city. How fiercely competitive was it how hard is it for you to compete for other companies, and are you going to roll out the carpet in the same way you did for GE for for other companies going forward?
3: Well, I think what was key here is that the state and the city came together as one team. Uh, there was no ego. There was no who gets the credit. Um, it was the state, which is you know the governor Charlie Baker, myself, and our teams really worked very closely together, uh, and the business community came into it a little bit and so did some of the higher education facilities. So I think if, you, if companies are looking, they're looking for stability. They're not looking for risks in government. They're not looking for, for headaches. I don't think every company that you bring to a city, you need to quite honestly put a tax incentive together. You shouldn't need to do that um, because you just you can't afford it over the long run. Or at least short, short run, you kind of – You don't want to say bankrupt the city, but you put the city at a competitive disadvantage because it is about growth. It is about revenue. It's about getting real estate tax and and, and income tax to the city to to generate some of the (laughs) things you have to do. But I, I think you have to have that that team approach you see it in sports all the time. The teams that win the championships are the ones right. with, with uh, offense and defense and special teams or whatever it might be come together. Well, and that's what happened in this particular case.
1: Uh, Tom Keene in Boston, David Gura in New York jobs day, but with us now the 54th mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh. And of course, Marty Walsh comes to us on the spectrum enterprise phone line spectrum enterprise nationwide fiber-based network, and IT infrastructure solutions. Uh, Marty, you have a different view from most of the plutocracy. You are part of the Laborers Local 223. You were there as a kid, 21 years old. What's the view of our president-elect of Laborers Local 223? Did they turn out and vote for Donald Trump?
3: No, I I would think that a lot of the building trades in Boston um, voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, but I'm going to kid myself. There's a large fraction of, of members, uh, not just of unions, but of a, lot of a lot of different areas around the country that voted for Donald Trump. Um, and I tried to say, I mean, I don't want to go right to the negative on what his presidency is going to be. Um, you know, there's some questions around his social, some of the social programs that he has. I think people are unsure exactly what all this talk on bringing jobs back to America means and how can he do that. I think every president tries to do that. No president goes into office to say we want to export jobs, but it'd be interesting to see how does he bring these jobs back, and if they come back, are they going to be good paid jobs for workers, or are they going to try and you know get workers to work for for minimum wage in some of these some of these places?
0: Mayor Walsh, you've talked a lot about uh, inequality as an issue in Boston and as an issue in the the country. I looked at the the Globe yesterday. Tom probably saw in hard copy rents are down uh, in Boston, if only by one point seven percent or thirty six bucks a month on average. How big an issue is this for you in Boston, and how do you as a mayor do something about it? It's something Tom and I talk a lot about in the context of New York, of course. How particular is the situation there in Boston?
3: No, it's a big issue, and I think what's happening is people being pushed out of the city. Boston, Boston, New York, San Francisco, Chicago are expensive places to live. And What I'm doing in Boston is we launched a housing plan in 2014 to create 53,000 units of new housing by the year 2030. We're way ahead of our plan. We have about 40,000 units under construction in the permitting process, or complete in Boston. And and there's about 40% of those are moderate, low-income housing units. And I think that what we're seeing a little bit in the drop in rent stabilization, I don't know if it's called stabilization, but... We're starting to see, you know, getting more supply on the market. Mm-hmm. There's such a high demand in Boston right now. Um, people moving in. Our population is going to be at seven hundred thousand people in the next few years, and we haven't seen that population since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So we're really, you know, a lot of people want to be here, but we have to continue to to, to work on. Two things I think that we've done in the last couple of years one one is working on making sure we build more housing and the second is we'll really focus on pay equity for women in the city a lot of the a lot of households are led uh, female led households. And we, we put out a report yesterday about a wage gap and mm-hmm. working to try and close that wage gap. And people might not see that as one of the ways of, right. of closing in, income inequality. But it's a big way, particularly with 50 percent of the households are led by women.
1: Mayor, we spend, families, most, we spend most of our time worldwide and coast to coast talking to fancy guys with fancy degrees. You didn't take that path. You took a different path. Uh, a path uh, right from your childhood. What's your message to the plutocracy today? How Everybody wants America to get together away from what many describe as a new gilded age. What's the Walsh prescription to get us away from the negative outcomes of a gilded age?
3: You know, America's a great country. And, I'm, I'm you know, I'm the typical American story to some degree. In some way, I'm not. My mother and father came to this country from Ireland. Uh, I went to school at Boston College, but I went to school at night. I worked during the day, um, you know, and, and I think I, we were, my family worked hard for us. It has. And they taught me how to work hard for what I have, and I, I still believe in the American dream, and I still think there is an American dream out there, and I think that as a society, you know, we're just going to continue to move forward. I'm not sure what the next four years are going to bring in this country. Uh, certainly, I support Hillary Clinton for president. Um, some people didn't think Hillary was the right person. Some people yeah. didn't think Donald's the right person. But at the end of the day, America is still the greatest country yeah. in the world, and we can to continue to work hard for the people listening out there um, that that are struggling. Just just keep moving forward. I mean, it's going to. You know, it's a day at a time, and that's my approach in life. is a day at a time. It's, uh, and, and we're America is going to continue to be the best country in the world uh, the, because, it was, because of its people.
1: He is the 54th mayor of Boston. His goal this year is to get David Ortiz to do one more. Yeah. Marty Walsh, <laughs> thank you so much. He is the mayor of Boston. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning from New York, from Boston, this Jobs Day. David Gur in New York. I'm Tom Keene in Boston. And I might add that with all the worthies that we speak through, through through the year in Davos and in London and New York, this is the most important interview of the year. We do it on January 6th because it's about your non-retirement account. Alicia Munnell is with the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. It barely describes her contribution to thinking and analyzing and checking the data of all of our miserable retirement programs. Professor Minnell joins us in our Boston studios. Alicia's just honored to have you here. Arissa 1974, really going back to JFK in 1961. Almost everybody I know says this is a failure. How much of a failure is our work of 1974 that we're all living in 2017?
2: It was well-intentioned legislation to strengthen the traditional pension plan. Uh, It also made the pension plan very costly. And a lot of other things changed that made 401K plans much more attractive to employers and and to employees at the time uh, than the typical pension plan.
1: I remember reading one of your research pieces. And, folks, go to the Center for Retirement Research website with just tons of research by people dead serious about where we are a few years ago. You basically said 81% of Americans are not where they need to be for retirement. Give us an update. What's the vector? Are we doing better, or is it, do- is it worse?
2: So we put out something called the National Retirement Risk Index that measures the percent of households that are not going to be able to maintain their standard of living in retirement. And that number is in 2013 was <coughs> 52%. Um, and that's shocking. That's more than half the population that are at risk. So what are Sorry, sorry, David. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, and that's up substantially from the uh, 90s.
0: That's up and that's startling. What are the the consequences of that? We were talking with Danny Blanchflower of of Dartmouth earlier in the week about uh, how much part time work we're seeing and how much later people are working uh, into their lives. Uh, Is that correlation there? Do you see that?
2: So I, I'm a big fan of working later. I was talking to Tom before the program. Yes, we are. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and I mean, I think that's actually a very good thing. That's very different than raising the Social Security uh, <clears throat> full retirement age. But if people can stay in the labor force, they have a high, higher, much higher probability of being secure in mm-hmm. retirement.
1: How do you respond to the idea that those that have means should be able to put aside a lot more because not only are they gonna fund their own retirements, but they end up writing checks for a lot of family members. Why do we limit retirement contributions? Are we trying to get the rich
2: people? So the, there's a tax benefit associated with uh, retirement savings. So to the extent the individual benefits, the treasury. Oh, but come on!
1: I pay the taxes down the road when I'm 104. <laughs> oh,
2: but Tom, you know that deferral has a real benefit, and and the the that means that puts the treasury behind, and it's trying to target these incentives for people who really need to save. The notion is that super rich people can. Almost don't need to save uh, and make make the decision. My point
1: on this, David, not that you would understand this young lad, the (laughs)
2: definition of super rich
1: for me and Professor Minnell is a lot different than the the, the super rich of the Congress.
0: What's what's, uh, the the notion of retirement today? I mean, do do we regard retirement differently? Are we seeing a, a change in how we define what retirement is?
2: So uh, you're right. Retirement is a relatively recent phenomenon, and it's a 20th century phenomenon. Uh, people are still going to be able to retire. The the key to making the whole situation better, other than fixing the programs. And I'd like to talk about that for a second, too, sure. if I have a chance, It is to encourage people to stay in the labor force. And that means they have to plan ahead. They need to tell their employer they're not going to you know, leave at 62, and they want to be included in training programs, and they want to be considered for promotion, all that kind of thing. That comes from the uh, employee. We also need to fix the 401k system so it works better. We need to fix Social Security because it has a deficit, and we need to expand coverage because if you take a snapshot of the workforce at any moment in time, half the population has no 401k, no defined benefit plan, nothing at all. So, I mean, we really need a a three-part fix here.
0: Our colleague Carol Heimeritz wrote what I thought was a great piece about uh, people working longer and the difficulty that... (laughs) that comes up there Mm. getting employers to go along with that. How do we finesse that? How do we make it something that's more widely acceptable?
2: So, uh, uh, employers are skeptical of people with gray hair. I think that is Really? Yes. I'm shocked (laughs) to hear that. (laughs) I think that's true. And so I, the employee really needs to develop this relationship with the employer, emphasizing how uh, committed to the work they are. Uh, they can't spend time on the computer looking at property in Florida. This is uh, Employees need to persuade employers that they are going to be valuable well into their 60s. If you're
1: just joining us, Alicia Munnell of Boston College. Holding court at the Center for Retirement Research. She is the Drucker Professor of Management Sciences. What would Peter Drucker say? Of our totally messed up retirement plan, I mean he was legendary <laughs> he was and he would have been outspoken about the mess we 're in
2: I think he would I think that he would say that there are enormous holes in this system, and the only way to, for people to be secure is to have those holes fixed
1: so you have the voice of Democrats, and I believe selective Republicans when you bring Monnell urgency to Washington. How do our elected officials
2: respond? I, I think it, it should be a non-apolitical issue. Um, the, but it is not in the sense that to make 401K plans work better, we need to make them automatic. That means people have to be automatically enrolled. They have to uh, have a contribution rate that's reasonable when they're put in. They need some auto-escalation in the default contribution rate. And there's a resistance to, and and all that stuff is encouraged under current law, but it's time, it's gone, the encouragement has gone as far as it can. At this point, it's time to say, if you want to have a 401k plan, you have to make it automatic. And that's the only Mm -hmm. way the 401k plans are going to work. We haven't talked, go ahead. No, you've- <laughs> I
0: just want to say, we, we haven't talked about health care costs here, and there is such a conversation going on now in Washington about uh, the future of the Affordable Care Act, and, and a component part of that was doing something to address costs. Overlay that with us uh, on retirement and, and, and sort of the, the role that, that uh, escalating health care costs have had.
2: So, I mean, you're really going back to the big picture. Why are we in such trouble? We're in such trouble because our needs for retirement income are increasing, and they're increasing because we're living longer and because we have high and rapidly rising health care costs. There's also this fact we have very low interest rates, so you need a bigger pile. At the same time that needs are increasing, resources are declining.
1: I have one more question, and we'll let you go on with your day. (laughs) Those of us in the real world have tuition bills to pay unless we can play hockey for Jerry York at Boston College. And those of us in the real world dip into our retirement accounts to write tuition checks to esteemed schools. Should we stop that? Should we sacrifice our kids' education and fix the racket instead of dipping into our future retirement?
2: I, I think it's a little bit like the notification in the airplane put the mask on yourself first and then put it on your child so i think protecting retirement income is really important but also these tuition numbers <laughs> i am a professor are really out of sight and um, even the public universities are very expensive and i don't see how right. any middle income person <clears throat> can make it
1: we would be pleased for you to attend our new york studios yes, please, if you ever darken <laughs> uh, if you ever come to new york city and of course alicia Manell at Boston College. I can't say enough, folks, about the Center for Retirement Research. You'll look at 12 papers there. You'll see six. You'll go, yeah, yeah, I really don't want to read that. (laughs) So you'll see two or three more that are like, yeah, maybe. And there will be one on your topic, your emotion, that will hit you over the head. Alicia Munnell, Drucker professor at Boston College.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, member SIPC.
1: Bill Gross will be along as always on Jobs Day, but we have a mystery guest, David Curray, in New York.
0: <laughs> mystery guest in New York as so we push ahead uh, to the jobs numbers at 830 Wall Street time, 830 Storo Drive time. Uh, let's say today, while you're uh, in Boston. Uh, Jim Jim Glassman joins us now in studio. He's the head economist at Chase Commercial Bank, and as you said, joins us here uh, in New York. Jim, let me ask you, first of all here, we had this big diminishment uh, the last time we got one of these reports, from 4.9% to 4.6%, steeper drop than than many would have expected. In light of that, do you expect uh, the rate to stay the same, to tick up a a little bit? What are you looking for uh, in today's numbers?
4: You know, it may tick up a slight bit, but usually when these things happen and the unemployment rate takes a big step down, Uh, you tend to stay there for a little while as things catch up to it. So often the aberration that you see in the unemployment rate isn't volatility that gets reversed. It really just kind of is a step down and then we kind of hover there for a while. But, you know, uh, I think we're kind of in the zone where we should be for the measured unemployed. There still is a pool of people who are not captured in this unemployment rate. They will be coming in, and I expect that that will probably slow the decline in unemployment. We probably will hover here for a while. How
0: useful are the the numbers that we got yesterday, the weekly numbers, the ADP numbers? I was struck by uh, who's hiring. You're seeing big companies uh, doing more of the hiring than than smaller companies right now.
4: Yeah, that uh, does make sense. It's kind of hard to know where we are right now because there's there's a lot up in the air with the outlook for this coming year. If we get new push from Washington – uh, it may sort of rev things up a little bit more, but I think we were probably heading toward something more moderate growth and job growth. Because, frankly, we, most people we look at the unemployment measures, we're sort of getting there. We've got maybe two million young people still out. Uh, they will be coming back in, and we've got a couple. We still have about a million people more than normal who are working part time and they wonderful time job. But honestly, uh, I think it's not surprising. That, that we're seeing the steady job growth. When the economy starts doing better, the large companies probably offer more stability for people. And so, you know, if they're hiring, then they tend to draw people more than, say, small businesses. But I, I, a lot will depend yeah. on and what they do on the policy side. If they help the small business community, uh, that may change the story a bit. Hmm.
1: Jim, what are you learning about the youth of America? You were front and center during the crisis on what the different age Partitions, if you will, we're doing in America. What is your latest research on our kids? Are they going back to work?
4: Uh, slowly coming back. The, the last couple of months was kind of a step back on this, but it looked like all of 2016 we were seeing this steady pullback. And if you've talked to people of higher education, uh, they would say they, they would tell you that enrollments are coming down. And they, they expected that because when the economy does better, enrollments go down. So I think personally, I think you look at the 20- and 30-year-olds as a group, there are about 2 million still who have not come back in. Maybe they're still doing the schooling. I think this generation got more help than maybe you and I did, Tom, because parents are available to help <coughs> if you, know, they, you can go back to school. And so a lot of kids did that. And they were smart to do it because the nature of the jobs are more demanding, and there are good jobs out there if you can get better trained. So I think, I, I think we're seeing a reversal of this thing that's been going on. We had about yeah. 3 million people who dropped out originally. <clears throat> now it's down to about 2 million. So that tells me we are starting to see improvement. Right. If you look at the participation rate of p- various ages. You see some improvement there.
1: Is our pay raise for 2017 going to be a benefit pay raise or will we actually see something in our check?
4: I hope we see it in our check. It's hard to tell from these monthly numbers because they're all over the map. The average hourly earnings on a year-on-year basis, which should be smooth, is sort of vacillating between two and a half and three and a half percent. So I bet as the year progresses, we're going to see more real money showing up in the paycheck. You'll see it. I'm struck by the, the
0: transition that we've seen underway here uh, away from blue-collar jobs, away from manufacturing jobs, into service, uh, into retail, uh, the, the, <laughs> the growth of pink-collar jobs, I've seen them called before. How seismic a change uh, is this, as you see it?
4: You know, it's been going on for a while, right? Because, I mean, this is really one of the disruptions going on in the industrial economy is we used to have 20 million people working in manufacturing. Now that's down to 12 million. So 8 million jobs in manufacturing have disappeared And this is a secular trend that's been going on as a result of innovation. So I don't know that it's a step change, but it is, you know, it's something that you expect in a modern Mm -hmm. economy.
1: Let's get a 2017 update. Folks, if you're just joining us, Jim Glassman, uh, J.P. Morgan with us, generous of him almost every month, unless he's on the road uh, with us to preview Jobs Day. Uh, Jim Glassman, give us an update on... The nostalgia that we saw from your Professor Robert Gordon of Northwestern last year, has Mr. Trump pulled us away from a nostalgic look back? Are we beginning to look forward?
4: You know, the market seems to be acting that way, right? Uh, You you had the election. The market is anticipating we're going to get a new effort to try to push the economy more. The equity market tends to monetize hopes. And so in a way, we're bringing that forward. Um, I think maybe so. I think, you know, taking a time out, looking at regulations, trying to fix the healthcare thing, I wish it, it's not really a partisan issue. We really need to fix the healthcare issue because that's our number one imbalance that's that's plaguing the economy. But I think the hope of tax reform, tax reduction, some rethinking of of the regulations is bringing back that enthusiasm and animal spirits Frankly, and I think that's part of what's driving the equity market. Well,
1: but an animal spirits is a nominal GDP. If we do get Trumpflation, is it a good pickup in nominal GDP? Will there be a real growth pickup, that's or the will question. it all be within inflation?
4: That's the question. A lot of people think. Look, the economy is close to full employment. Our demographics is slowed how much can we really get out of real economic activity if we try to step on the gas? Personally, I think what we're going to find out, I'm not so skeptical. I, I think we've got a lot of capacity out there. The businesses have a lot of capacity to do more and boost productivity. We just haven't seen that in our numbers. And the reason I say that is because when you look everywhere, innovation's everywhere. And companies are driving really hard to be more efficient, cut costs. So I think that we're going to find out that we have the capacity to do better, to grow more. Uh, and it will translate into more real benefits, not so much inflation.
0: We had a conversation a little earlier in the week about the squishiness of the the term productivity.
4: Yeah. Uh, what does it mean
0: What does it mean to you when we talk about an improvement
4: in productivity? What exactly does that look like? You know, uh, it, it's really – it, it t- requires intuition to think about this. You don't see it in n- – numbers are very poor at trying to capture this thing because sometimes it takes a decade to see a trend developing. Um, it means that we're more efficient at doing things. We've got less downtime in our workday. I mean, I look at, look, look at your own personal life. Mm. I have less wasted time in my life because of the, you know, online shopping, because of what I can do, seamless, uh, you know, remote connecting. And I think that's going on all over the place, not only in our business community, but in our private life. So to me, it's really more of a feeling. Are we getting more, are we able to do more with the same resources I think a lot of what's going on in our economy is helping us to do that, including the sharing economy. James Glassman here with us in the studio,
0: head economist at Chase Commercial Bank. Great to have you here. Uh, As we continue to press on to 8.30 when the jobs data uh, come out, there's been so much conversation about what the president-elect may or may not do uh, in concert with Republicans on, on Capitol Hill. A big component of that is the prospect for infrastructure spending. I wonder, as you look at that, as you think about that, what would make a stimulus package the most efficacious? In other words, what, what are lawmakers wrestling with? How do they make this thing something that actually does make a difference if, in fact, they go down that path?
4: I personally think you. what really does make a difference is tax reform uh, and action on the tax side, because that I, I think that's that that changes the attitude, the confidence level of the business community. Infrastructure spending, there are limits on how much you can do because it takes time to get all the permitting done. As President Obama f- showed, uh, these shovel-ready projects they have to go through a long process before they get put in place. And I think Congress is probably going to be trying to figure out how to pay for this because we do have a long-term fiscal challenge. So to me, the the the, the greater potential here is. What we might get on the tax reform side, particularly in the corporate area,
0: in the corporate area, there's been talk of a, uh, a repatriation holiday. Uh, some concern about what corporations might do with that money if they were able to bring it back at a uh, at a lower rate. On, on the subject of efficaciousness here, uh, you know, are, are you optimistic that that would be spent well?
4: Well, you know, I, I don't think that's really what drives b- business investment decisions. If you've got a good market here, you're going to be investing here regardless of where the money is parked. So I, I think. The, the thing that makes the uh, tax reform most efficacious is if the repatriation part is put together with a broader tax reform, bring the corporate tax rates down, 100% <clears throat> expensing, those kinds of things, limit, you know, cap the burden for small businesses. That's really a big. That's a big deal. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's the kind of thing that really gets generates the animal spirits, which I think has uh-huh. been the market's been hinting at.
1: I want to rip up the script here, Jim Glass, and we just had the great honor of speaking with Alicia Monell of boston college truly one of america's giants of thinking on our failed retirement systems just looking at her update on 401ks nationwide it's just stunning the failure of the system for so many americans how linked is our retirement success to buoyant gdp growth to me it almost has to be the key linkage isn't it
4: yeah that's that's one linkage and the other is the whole healthcare area i mean uh Part part of the issue with the retirement system or the public side is that we don't have our retirement age linked up to our life expectancy. So the program's always getting out of balance because, thank God, we all tend to live longer over time. But I think it's important. You know, you could argue, well, look, Americans don't seem to be really hung up about this because our saving is very low. Look, compare us with Japan. Japan, Japanese save very high rates because they don't really have that safety system, so, I think it would help though i think I think the more secure people feel about the future, the more confidence you have about what you're doing so it's 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 an important part of the public sector income support programs
0: on the, the subject of health care, uh, a lot of conversation on Capitol Hill about what happens next to Obamacare if Obamacare remains around i I imagine that uh, that law has had implications huge implications on on the labor market here and uh, the prospect of repealing it could really uh, throw things in a different direction.
4: Well, yeah, the problem is that insurance premiums rising, small businesses face a real big burden here. The, The system wasn't, we've got all the, we've got people into the system over the last eight years that are relatively unhealthy, but all the young, healthy folks didn't want to, don't come in. So it's creating stresses in the system. I really think the bigger issue is not so much coverage, but... Getting people more engaged in the process of choosing our own health care, uh, making people think about things, ma- making people understand what the costs are and helping doctors figure that out, getting a little more competition what what 's really what 's really missing in our healthcare care system is we 're not managing the resources very well, and if you believe the congressional budget office projections, what they 're telling us is if we don 't do anything, healthcare care is going to be gobbling up an awful lot of resources in the future, partly because the demographics is shifting, but partly because. We don't really get people engaged in the process of f- figuring out better ways to do things.
0: Uh, I wonder about the kind of jobs being created versus the kind of jobs that are, are disappearing. Is it, is it even – are the jobs that are going away being replaced with jobs of the same kind?
4: Well, if you look at the longer trend, the jobs that are disappearing are a lot of manufacturing jobs. They were paying above average. So that's really part of the problem. People are finding jobs, but the pay is not the same that they were getting before. And Mm. I think that's why there's such a divide. That's why there's so much unhappiness in in the industrial economy. But, you know, the truth is new jobs, if you think about it, when a company hires somebody, that first job you get is not your best-paying job in your career, you hope.
0: with us, James Glassman, head economist at Chase Commercial Bank. Coming up in a few moments, uh, Bill Gross of Janus Capital uh, will join us. Uh, Jim, let me get your reaction here uh, to the headline number. We talked about the fact that it might uh, go up slightly. The survey was for 4.7%. Indeed, that is what uh, we got here. And then the change in in payrolls here down uh, to 144000 Your reaction, if you would.
4: Yeah, I think this is good news, actually. It tells you we're we're sort of hovering in the zone of close to full, full employment, not really there yet. And yet... We're starting to see now more and more signs that that is actually helping workers because we're seeing average hourly earnings jumped uh, 2.9% on a year-on-year basis. So we've been volatile here. The, uh, the average hourly earnings, wage gains running from 25 to 3.5%. We're sort of in that 3% zone now, which is pretty good news because we've, that means we've kind of broken out of that 2% rut that we were in for much of this recovery. So I would say this is kind of the story we're going to see more and more in the coming year, the economy's, you know, job growth going to be slowing down gradually, and wages start to do better, and hopefully unemployment stays in this zone as we bring the rest of the folks who are missing back into the job market.
0: So I'd say good news. Let me ask you here just about the, the way that the Federal Reserve policymakers are going to read these data. I wonder if you had a threshold, a number over which this would have to come in for them to be satisfied to move ahead, move a pace with the, with the rate timetable, the rate, rate raise timetable that they set out at the last meeting. The expectation here of three rate increases in the year two thousand seventeen. Are they going to be satisfied with, with what they see today?
4: I think this is exactly the kind of news that makes them comfortable getting rates slowly back to something more normal. There would be no issue if the Fed funds rate were not so low, but. They- they think that a normal Fed funds rate is closer to about three percent, and they want to they want to get there in an orderly way. So they're starting to see more and more signs that the U.S. economy is doing well. We got our job market getting back to full employment, not quite there yet. It probably over the next couple of years will be. So I think this is the, exactly the kind of report that plays into their expectation. It makes the case for slowly moving the Fed funds rate. Back to something more normal.
0: Very quickly here, Jim Glassman, about thirty seconds left. I'm looking at the underemployment rate. That is at nine point two percent now. It Was at nine point three percent, ticking down uh, slightly. How big a concern is underemployment to you here, uh, still, when you look at the U.S. Well, labor
4: market? It's not. A, it's it's a concern, but it's it's uh, it's been improving. And I think what it's 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 another way of saying we're not quite there yet. We still have hidden populations of unemployment, uh, and and I think as the job market stays here and does well, we're going to see more and more of that come down. So. My expectation is we'll see a lot of the damage that was done during the recession. Unemployment that's not captured in the unemployment rate will slowly creep its way back. And I think it's that aspect that's going to be the most interesting in these job reports All to right. follow.
0: Jim Glassman, their head economist at Chase Commercial Bank. Thank you very much for your time. Again, the unemployment numbers here at 144,000 when you look at private payrolls. I want to welcome our listeners, our viewers around the world on Bloomberg Television. David Guerra and Tom Keene here, now joined by Bill Gross of Janus Capital. Bill, great to speak with you, as always. And let's start by taking stock here, President Obama, in the last two weeks of his second term as President of the United States. He has been touting uh, his achievements with regard to the labor market here uh, in a memo yesterday, uh, in speeches over the last few weeks. Uh, give us your assessment of how the labor market looks today, how the labor market post-crisis looks under the tenure of President Obama.
5: Well uh, you know he 's done a fine job from where he started right uh, eight years ago and down at four point seven percent unemployment from uh, as I remember something above uh, nine and close to ten so um, yeah the the economy's improving the labor market's improving i I still think in contrast to what Jim Glassman just said that the u six the um, the underemployment rate is is relatively high and needs to come down by. One or two percent, because there we're talking about the the labor force that wants to work, uh, as opposed to um, the U3 number. But it's a it's a decent number, and it suggests that the GDP perhaps is moving along at two percent or two and a half percent. I think that in order to um, you know to get a, a very healthy economy, a Trump uh, you know a suggested uh, strong economy, that you need. real growth and you need 5% nominal growth and we're, you know, about a point under for both of those.
1: Well, but Bill, this is absolutely crucial. If we are to see a lift in the animal spirits. certainly something the president-elect wants, do you tilt towards it will be an inflation lift, illusory to Americans of little value, or will we actually
5: see real economic growth over the next year or two years? Yeah. I think some of both. Tom, it's hard to know. We, we don't really know what the program will be. Uh, Trump is suggesting a, a trillion dollar program over 10 years. That's 100 billion a year. That's a half a percent in terms of fiscal spending that might, you know, boost real growth by a half a percent or so. Mm-hmm. We've seen inflation uh, with these numbers and wages go up by, you know, close to 3%. So I I, I think some of both. I think what's critical, however, is, is the productivity number and not just Productivity, but total factor productivity it gets a little complicated and, you know, economists speak. But what that means is that you can't just throw resources at the economy like uh, Trump may do and the Republican administration may do in terms of fiscal spending. But you need to um, throw productivity at the economy. In other words, resources that produce uh, growing productivity as right. opposed to just more resources. And so uh, we're going to have to see about that. That, I think, is the crucial number.
1: Uh, Bill, it it is such an interesting time. And it's a time where we could do a six-hour interview with you. Maybe we'll do that if my people talk to your people. (laughs) But the basic idea here, Bill, is there's three vectors to interest rates. There's a Trump reflation. There's a jump condition that we've had since November 8th and a stability. And then there's a lot of people talking about, okay, this is great but we're going to roll over to a, no, a new lower rate regime, some of that because of international affairs. What is a Janus unconstrained fund betting on? Higher rates,
5: sustained rates, or do we roll back to a
1: pre-Trump
5: level? Well, the slightly higher rates, and, and here I'll, I'll introduce a, a new factor that I know you're interested in because uh, you're a technician to to a considerable extent, but there's been a 30-year, a 30 35-year trend line since 19... Uh, 19- 84, 83 on the 10-year, take the 10-year Treasury, for instance, um, moving down perhaps by 30 basis points a year, but the the downward trend line uh, being hit by six, seven, eight, nine times in a cyclical type of fashion, a very strong trend line. You know, at the moment, that trend line is around 2.6 percent. And so uh, I, would, I would say this, uh, you know, it's hard to know what fiscal spending will do in terms of real growth and in terms of inflation. It's hard to know what other countries and central banks will do in terms of their Mm -hmm. uh, quantitative easing, et cetera, et cetera. But we will see it. Uh, We will know it. You know, if uh, the 10-year breaks 2.6 percent on a weekly or on a monthly basis because it's so strong and so important in terms of uh, technical analysis yeah. that uh, if and when it's broken on the upside, it's a bear market. Right. And if it's not broken on the upside, we just sort of stay where we are. Right.
1: And, and David, David Gura, this is really, really important, this idea of trying to find a point estimate of where things change. Mr. Gross says 2.6 percent. There's a lot of other opinions on that, but it's nice at least to hear a point estimate we can get our hands around.
0: Absolutely. Bill, let me ask you if we're starting to see a recalibration of expectations when it comes to Washington's ability to affect policy. We had the excitement, the exuberance in the markets at the end of last year. Here we are uh, in 2017. We see a Republican lawmakers especially laying out their agenda items. Uh, are there, is there going to be a healthy dose of realism here over these next few weeks?
5: Well, I, you know, I think there should be. Uh, we, we don't know what the fiscal package will be, and it will be uh, having its effect a year or two years from now. We don't know what the healthcare uh, reconfiguration will be. We're not sure uh, exactly where the money goes and uh, where it comes from. So I, I think there's a touch of realism. Again, what I what I think investors want to see is a is a standard <clears> three percent real growth rate, which will induce. You know, profit growth. With with wages moving up at 3%, it's important that real growth moves up by 3% so that uh, corporate profits can participate in that uh, particular run. So um, we're going to need those types of numbers at the moment. What do we have? Uh, 1.9% for the last 12 months, about 2% for the last five years. Um, can Trump do it? Can he produce a 3% number uh, and, and give some to profits and some to wages? Um, we're just going to have to see. I well. tend to be skeptical. I, I, I tend to be of the, you know, secular stagnation, uh, Robert Gordon, uh, low-hanging fruit productivity, uh, new normal type of uh, persuasion. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if fiscal spending can get us up there. We continue our conversation with William
1: Gross. Bill Gross, everyone wants to know what you feel about Trump economics, Trump theory, but particularly that through the prism that we heard earlier this week from Lawrence Summer, the former Secretary of Treasury, Larry Summers was fiery about speaking about the voodoo economics of a selected group of Trump advisors, even calling it economic creationism. Is Trump economics on solid
5: theoretical ground? Well, on a short-term basis, perhaps, but I think that's what Larry Summers is talking about, uh, creationism, a little sensitive, I guess, but voodoo economics, we know about that. Well, what he's suggesting, basically, is that uh, some of the policy initiatives, the tax cuts, for instance, that will generate more revenue. We've we've heard this before. We've seen it with the Laffer curve, and so he's criticizing that. He's also talking about repatriation of money, you know, uh, $1 trillion, $2 trillion coming back into <laughs> the economy and regenerating investment. Typically and historically back in the early part of this century, about uh, 15 years ago with Bush, it did come back. They did reduce the rate, but it came back and it was used for stock buybacks and for mergers and acquisitions, not for investment. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of voodoo there in terms of the tax policies, at least, not necessarily in terms of the fiscal spending.
1: Bill, this is an important question. I believe you worked at a small startup shop in Newport Beach a few years ago. And you had enormous influence with other nations' debt. You knew about Mexico debt. You knew about Poland debt. You knew about the debt of Asia and the modest amount of debt in Asia. Are you concerned that Trump economics will lead to a zero-sum world that will destabilize the international financial system?
5: Yeah, I, I think that's a possibility. Let's not put odds on it and uh, go to an extreme. But yeah, it's a possibility because the the world in total, and we're talking about emerging and we're talking about developed, with Japan and so on, is at 350 uh, percent of debt to GDP, the highest it's ever been. What does that mean? Why is that such a negative? Well, in certain countries' terms, in terms of uh, Mexico and in some of the emerging market countries, to the extent that, that they have a high amount and a growing amount of dollar-denominated debt and the dollar strengthens, which it has, except for the last few days, as you know, then uh, the ability to pay back that dollar-denominated debt down the road becomes more and more difficult and could potentially you know, create a situation where uh, certain countries have to be bailed out by the IMF and so on. I'm not suggesting that for Mexico. I like Mexico, but um, yes, it's a, it's a definite problem. Whenever you get imbalances in terms of debt, um, look for debt to GDP, and uh, therein lies the problem. China is a good example going forward.
0: Bill, there are plenty of people here who would like to see you uh, on Twitter, and this may be the president-elect who gets you uh, to do it. I'm sure you've been following what the president-elect has been tweeting this week. He's been talking about companies in specific and talking about the relationship uh, with Mexico, as well as we sort of try to navigate all of this uh, uncertainty. Are we getting the contours here of a trade policy from what we've seen from Donald Trump this week?
5: Well, we're uh, we're uh, we're about to get perhaps, or, or we're getting what uh, what we're seeing in terms of tweets. I I think it's interesting, David, that um, you know some of these uh, uh, pre-term policies. He's, he's not in office yet, uh, where he's basically cajoling, if that's a nice word, uh, you know, companies to uh, move production back in the United States. I, I think that's fine, but it reminds me to some extent, uh, does it not, of uh, of policies in uh, Italy uh, long ago, uh, you know, associated with Mussolini and uh, government control of corporate interests. And so, you know, I I don't want it to go too far. Let's, uh, yeah, let's- Okay, but Bill, come on. Bill, Bill,
1: Bill, Mr. Gross, I've Mr. Gross, I have to interrupt there. This is too important. Are you suggesting that we are seeing a fascism light or some form of new neo-fascism with the policies of our president-elect?
5: Well, I'm not going to go that far, that's your term. I was going to put out a tweet and say, uh, none dare call it fascism, and so I don't dare call it fascism. But the, to the extent that he pinpoints certain corporations and certain industries and makes them change their policies you know, based upon statements and threats, you know, it, it reminds me, yes, of, uh, of policies long ago, which, by the way, were supposed to make the trains run on time and did for a few years, but ultimately uh, the trains weren't running.
0: Bill, let me ask you here about the role of the the Fed Reserve here uh, in the new term with with Donald Trump as uh, president. I wonder if we're seeing a third mandate here. We've got employment, we've got inflation, then we've got the Fed's job to be a a political punching bag. We have the prospects here for a radical transformation of the Fed. Five new uh, people could be joining the Fed, including a chairperson here in the next uh, 18 months. Who would you like to see running? What kind of person would you like to see uh, running the Fed? How do you see the Fed changing here under a president, Donald Trump?
5: Well, as you probably know, and I, I know Tom knows uh, for sure, over the past year or two, um, you know, uh, my favorite policy in terms of uh, the Fed, and the central bank, is, is to move interest rates back as close to normal as possible without threatening uh, the economy in terms of high real rates. The critical question, of course, is what's the appropriate real neutral rate or nominal neutral rate that'll make the economy chug along at two uh, to three percent. I, I would like to see a Fed that is more interested in raising rates and and, uh, producing a neutral interest rate because I think ultimately the last several years has been destructive in terms of where they've been at negative interest rates and not in the United States but negative interest rates around the world you know basically have been robbing savers of their ability to save um, which has robbed investment of. and ability to grow and in, in terms of uh, uh, economic terms. so I, I would I would want to use the the Fed and the US as a leader to raise interest rates back to more normal levels right. in order to regenerate savings. Bill, we have so much more
1: to talk about this morning and time is just short short short. Help me here with the theme that we've had this week of the butterfly effect of EM currencies which have a certain curve and an acceleration to their uh, weakness. How do you position and how do you think about profoundly weak Malaysian, profoundly weak Turkish, the Mexican peso breaching into record weakness as well? What should that signal to the new administration?
5: Well, those are all uh, different situations, right? Turkey is, is a, a basket case uh, fr- from a <clears throat> number of angles. But let's pick on Me- Mexico for a second. And yes, every time Trump tweets about uh, a car company uh, and moving uh, production back, you know the, the peso weakens. I would look at a longer-term trend line uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the real. Uh, the real peso, uh, inflation-adjusted, and uh, point out that it's perhaps uh, 45 to 50 percent lower than it was five or six years ago. What does that mean? It means the peso is very competitive. It means that yes, even if you know uh, some of that production doesn't flow to Mexico on a political basis, that it's very, very, very cheap, you know, relative to other countries, and so. That's my way of saying that the peso uh, is very cheap and it's politically oriented. And the trick for an investor is basically to to try and time that political influence and and to buy a very cheap currency at a very attractive level.
0: Are you prepared to uh, to start writing the obituary for globalization bill? We've heard people saying that we're seeing the end of it. Are you in that camp?
5: Yeah, I think so, and I I wrote the obituary uh, in mild terms uh, with the new normal back in 2008 and 2009. I mean, we've had several uh, longer-term secular trends. We've had Bretton Woods. Uh, in 1971, we moved into another right. globalization-type of trend, which induced uh, a, a monetary uh, consideration. And now uh, we're moving in the other direction. If only uh, from monetary terms, that we've gone so low that uh, negative interest rates have to, to have to move higher. Right. And, and of course, with trade policies and uh, all of that, reflecting a deglobalization as opposed to a globalization. Uh, so, yeah, I think ver- we're in a new era, and I think some of the effects are going to be negative.
1: I want David Gura to uh, take us out here, but Bill Gross, i got one more question. Should we build a wall around the San Francisco 49ers to keep them removed from the rest of the
5: NFL? <laughs> well, maybe the Browns. Uh, give the Niners a <laughs> chance. They've got the second draft choice. Who knows? Oh, let's, good. let's go with that. Very good.
0: Bill Gross there of Janus Capital joining us, uh, as he often does here on Jobstack. Grateful for his time.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.